Welcome to It's Bloody Complicated, the Compass podcast. I'm Neil Lawson, your host and director of Compass. These are unprecedented times and we need to rise to the new and enormous challenges we now face. Over the next few weeks, we'll be speaking with writers, thinkers, politicians, journalists and public service workers about how we come out of this mess in much better shape than we went in, a good society after COVID-19. These conversations have live access for Compass members who can put their own questions directly to our guests. If you'd like to participate in the live call and help support all of our work, go to compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast to join Compass today. Otherwise, sit back, relax and enjoy this week's podcast. We're joined in this special edition of the Compass podcast, It's Bloody Complicated, by Andrew Murray. The Stop the War, Guinea and Corbyn advisor discuss lots of issues germane to Compass, but in particular, his new book, Is Socialism Possible in, in Britain? Published uh, by Verso um, in September, which you can pre-order now. So please make sure you go away and pre-order it from uh, your favourite independent bookshop at the very least. Um, welcome, Andrew. It's great to have you on the podcast. Um, yeah, thanks, Neil. Uh, let's let's start so people can locate you. And we kind of always do this. Give us a quick run through of your political life, Andrew, and the kind of the key institutions, the key moments which have kind of shaped you so we can understand you know, the context for the rest of the conversation. Yeah, well, my political life started back in 1976, a very different world to today when I uh, joined the Communist Party, which was in those days a more significant and substantial organisation than it would be seen to be today, Uh, not on the scale of the French or Italian communist parties, but still a a player in the British Labour movement. Uh, I worked for the Morning Star for a number of years, including as its political uh, correspondent. Uh, This is during the Thatcher years. Um, And then I moved on to become a press officer for the Transport and General Workers Union, uh, then the biggest uh, union in the country that later became part of uh, of Unite. I worked there through most of the 1990s uh, and uh, I went back there in uh, 2003. Uh, in between, I worked at ASLEF, the train drivers union, again, in a communications role. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, I was involved in Stop the War Coalition. I helped set that up in 2001. Uh, and I was chair of that uh, from for a decade, 2001 through to 2011, including at the time of the big marches against the Iraq War. Uh, went back to um, Unite, uh, as I said, and um, rose in the end to become chief of staff there under Len McCluskey, who was the general secretary. I was sort of number two uh, in the organisation, uh, responsible for... I suppose, managing the organisation rather than conducting its industrial business. Uh, In 2016, I joined the Labour Party. Uh, That was uh, actually less to do with Jeremy Corbyn and more to do with the union that was saying, we really want to get stuck into the Labour Party to changing it. You're the number two official. You have a sort of obligation to um, uh, do your bit. So... So uh, I joined the Labour Party then. Of course, I'd known Jeremy for uh, many years, mainly as a campaigner. Um, We campaigned together and stopped the war. Uh, But also I was actually at that point living in his constituency, uh, Islington North. 
Um, so then I was uh, in the Labour Party. In 2017, I was brought in controversially to help manage the general election campaign because there was difficulties with, with that campaign between Jeremy's staff and Labour HQ staff. Uh, the depths of the difficulties have subsequently been revealed. Uh, and thereafter, I became part-time on secondment from Unite and advisor uh, to Jeremy, part of the team in his uh, in the leader's opposition's office, Lotto for short. Uh, and I did that up until the end of Jeremy's uh, leadership. In uh, uh, in uh, 2020, after the 2019 election defeat, uh, and um, I retired from Unite finally uh, at the end of last year. Uh, so I think that that gives a frame uh, for my activities, I suppose. So just just one point to pick out there, and and a lot of people from successive successive generations wouldn't understand this, and why and why should they? But the Communist Party played an enormous role in, in the industrial life of the country and in the political education of people, and overlapped you know deeply into the Labour Party, um, you know through you know various forums, you know like Marx, like um, the Morning Star, but also in publications like Marxism Today, two very different publications. But I don't think people now appreciate just what a kind of cultural and political impact the Communist Party had, you know, in British and left British politics up until, you know, the 1980s. I think that's right. Uh, and you've put your finger on, I think, the two areas where it didn't make an impact, which was industrially within the trade union movement uh, and intellectually in, 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 in diverse ways. The Communist Party wasn't really an electoral force, I mean, since uh, shortly after the Second World War, since the Cold War, really. Um, but uh, it had immense uh, industrial uh, influence, uh, particularly as the sort of Cold War attitude started to erode uh, in the unions and communists got elected to leading positions. I remember a great controversy when um, the NUM delegation at the Labour Party conference, then a, a large body of miners, uh, was chaired at its delegation meeting by Mick McGahey, who's a member of the Communist Party. He did it because he was vice president of the NUM and the president at the time, Joe Gormley, was missing. So, yes, the Communist Party did have a very big indirect influence in the Labour Party and a direct influence on the policies of the trade union movement. Uh, uh, and uh, intellectually, I mean, really from the 1930s on, uh, the Communist Party and its understanding of Marxism had been uh, central uh, to development of left thinking, and that had got contested as time went on with the new left, other varieties of Marxism, um, and in the end, the Communist Party itself was quite divided between different um, factions looking to different uh, traditions within Marxism for their politics. Uh, but yes, I mean, joining the Communist Party in the mid-70s for someone on the left was not by any means an odd thing to do. And it didn't feel like you were putting yourself out of the mainstream. I came down to work in Parliament for the Morning Star at a very young age. I was only 19 when I first joined uh, the lobby. And the Morning Star there was regarded as completely normal and part of the national press. Indeed, I got a lot of help from lobby journalists working for conservative newspapers uh, at the time. Um, and that was all, all regarded as completely normal. It's only really after the miners' strike, the Communist Party declined quite rapidly. And then with the end of the Soviet Union, that was the end of the Communist Party, um, uh, you know, at least the CPGB, uh, other, other, you know, organisations do carry forward the name to this day. 
yeah, and the, and the intellectual, ideological malaise of the Labour Party since that time is, I think, a lot down to um, the demise of the impact of the thinking and radicalism of the of the Communist Party. You know, from from whatever angle, Hobsbawm, Hall, you know, whatever, it, it, it certainly enriched my political life. Um, yeah. So let's turn to the book. Tell us about the kind of motive for the book and, and what you, you know, kind of just give people a broad idea. We want them to buy it, but give them a broad idea of, of what's in it and what's its purpose for you, Andrew. Well, I think the Corbyn leadership of the Labour Party, almost everyone could agree across the spectrum, it was an extraordinary episode in British political life, completely unexpected, and it represented uh, a great challenge to the uh, establishment. It engaged the enthusiasm of hundreds of thousands of people, um, maybe even millions, uh, certainly uh, hundreds of thousands who joined the Labour Party, not been active in politics uh, before. Uh, and so it's a, a tumultuous few years. We had the uh, a surprising to most people 2017 election result, which showed that a Corbynite programme a, a radical program, radical by the Times, standard of the Times anyway, could get huge support. And then we had the uh, the defeat, the terminal defeat uh, of 2019. And so I wanted to write the book, to, since I was to some extent an insider, um, uh, and certainly had views on all of this, uh, about what had gone right and what ultimately had gone, uh, had gone wrong. So that so that this episode isn't completely buried and forgotten about, which I think is what a lot of people would, would like to uh, it to happen. I mean, I, I quote in my introduction to the book an editorial from the Financial Times describing the Corbyn leadership as a shameful footnote uh, in Labour's history. Well, I think it was neither shameful nor a footnote, um, and that's the argument that needs to be had. Um, and let me say how much I enjoyed the book. Um, Thank you. Um, I think it was honest. I think it was self-critical, and it's a really good romp around and chronicle of that time, in which I think you know. I think you're pretty open, and as I say, I'm pretty honest. Let's turn to the sort of Jeremy question first. First of all, because it seems to me that he was the only person from the left who could win the leadership, but you know, but paradoxically, he was kind of in some ways kind of hopelessly prepared to lead the Labour Party. That wasn't his thing. He was the reluctant candidate who didn't have any of the you know normal leadership aspirations, capabilities. You know, what you know, was it so? Was is is that true? And you know, and therefore, was it sort of hold beneath the waterline before it could get ever you know ever really get going? Because Jeremy, you know, couldn't be both things. He couldn't be the Messiah, but it, you know, and the managerial expert. Well, it's not a secret that he never remotely expected to be leader of the Labour Party. He had to be sort of pressed into standing famously just to widen the debate and to give the left a standard bearer in a contest it completely expected to lose. So he didn't expect to be, nor did he ever really want to be. I mean, you know, you know, he he is self-reflective enough to know that his his skill sets, which are uh, outstanding as a campaigner, uh, as a constituency MP, didn't extend to any conventional idea of what's required to be leader of the party. But at the same time, I mean, his qualities um, meant that he could win. Uh, it would be difficult to imagine even in 2015 John McDonnell or Diane Abbott or another possible candidate having been as successful as he was he came across as um 
you know, as straightforward, as honest, as sharing the values of most Labour Party members and expressing them uh, in a very uh, undogmatic and values-driven sort of way. Uh, so, so no one else could have won uh, uh, at that time, in my view, um, uh, from uh, from the left. Uh, there wasn't a huge range of options, but no one else would, I think, have done as as well as he did. But did it then foredoom the project? I think it created a, an issue, a difficulty, which beset us through to the end. But um, the 2017 election, uh, in which Jeremy played a sort of starring part, campaigning around the country, doing very well in, in media interviews, showed that the fact that he was an unusual leader, certainly, he didn't have the, the, the sort of normal characteristics. I mean, if you want normal characteristics, well, you've got Keir Starmer, um, who, whatever happens, I, I think you can safely say, inspires nobody. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, he... I mean, I mean, leadership doesn't come in just one shape. I mean, I think we all think there's a sort of model, a Thatcher Blair model of sort of thrusting out up front, uh, you know, leading the charge, always 100% certain, no room for self-doubt. Um, although I actually think Thatcher and Blair were, were somewhat different, but they, they both projected that strong leader model. Actually, the prime minister that got the biggest vote for his party ever was John Major, who was almost the antithesis of those that type of leadership. Uh, so, so I, I think the personal qualities. It's something I try to avoid in the book, both because Jeremy's someone I know well; he's a friend, and I don't want to sort of get into that. But I don't deny for a second that his his weaknesses, and in particular his difficulty in reaching decisions on controversial issues. Mm when they fused with a really difficult issue like Brexit, which no doubt we'll come on to, yeah. did did become a debilitating problem. And 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 what's your regret? Because, you know, you're a smart guy. You know, we know people like John Trickett, who was around, you know, the leadership team, John McDonald, you know. Uh, why wasn't you able to kind of run a manager, an effective managerial show alongside, you know, Jeremy's more charismatic, values-driven, you know, politics. Was it impossible to do that? Well, I think it was it was very difficult given the the sort of the depth of talent then that you had to draw on on the left, uh on, on the left of the left, really, when Jeremy became leader was uh, uh was shallow. The I mean Jeremy was unprepared for leadership, but so really was almost everyone else. Uh, so there wasn't there wasn't a sort of range of managers that you could, you know, or, you know who, that you could bring in and knit into a team. Again, I don't want to sort of get into the strengths and weaknesses of various colleagues uh, I worked with, but when I was brought in in 2017, it was precisely because they wanted someone who had managerial experience, which I'd had from Unite, helping yeah. to run a, a very big organisation, and you know. People pitched in that did the best they could. Uh, I think a lot of people were were playing one or two levels above what they've been used to hitherto in the uh, uh, in the, uh, the, the the lives or careers. Um, some were able to step up uh, easier than others, and I think John McDonald 
did a really great job as Shadow Chancellor. I, I make one or two criticisms of him in the book, but but you know basically he he really um, uh, he really stepped up. I think one also has to acknowledge, and this is perhaps more important than any evaluation of individuals, the circumstances that we were working under of non-stop hostility from day one, not just or even mainly from the Conservative Party and the Conservative media, but from our own side. You had people resigning from the Shadow Cabinet as Jeremy was making his his uh, uh, acceptance speech after he was elected leader. You had non-stop, uh, uh, you know, betrayal, really, from elements in the PLP. PLP meetings that were hideous. Uh, often they, they they seem to be getting towards the zone where violence might break out. I mean, luckily they never cross that line. Uh, but a complete rejection by the PLP, and as we now know from the Ford report and others, the um, the party apparatus. And you're sitting in this peculiar environment in a, 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 a warren of old-fashioned uh, offices in Parliament, uh, beset by so-called friendly fire 24-7, um, and that's before you get on to those you'd expect to oppose you. Uh, it was really very difficult to, you know, get a grip on the situation. Uh, so, so I'm not too critical of those that did the best they can uh, under those circumstances I, but uh, but there is a lesson i mean just to sort of briefly finish that in the early 80s the last time we were nearly in a position where the left could ascend to leadership of the labor party with ben we were a lot better prepared the the, the strength in the trade union movement and elsewhere was a lot a, a, a lot stronger uh, ideologically theoretically there was there was great the clarity, um, and you had you had a broader range of people. Those circumstances were uh, not there in 2015 and afterwards. It's almost a classic case of um, reach exceeding grasp. So, so I understand that, and I totally kind of condemn the lack of acceptance of the de- of the clear democratic mandate that Jeremy had. You know, should have been accepted, and people, even if they didn't support him, they should have you know backed him in a in a democratic spirit. The only comeback I'd say, and this may be something that will come back later in the conversation, Andrew, is that my experience of, of you know, of, of having any relationship with, you know, with that, your section of the left, is, you know, is that you don't engage that much. You don't open out to people like me, you know, the soft left, you know, and, and was that not a moment where you should have opened the doors more and be more proactive, I, you know, in the ways that New Labour were very proactive in terms of who they co-opted and who they dealt with and who they had relationships with. It goes back to a kind of central theme of Compass is that the future has to be negotiated. And to do that, you have to build alliances, trust, relationships, etc. And I, you know, I never felt that the Corbyn leadership or the Corbyn movement reached out very far beyond its confines. Is that is that true? Or was you doing the right I thing see- anyway? I think there is uh, there is a point there, um, uh, yes. But I mean, if you draw a comparison with New Labour, New Labour were under nothing like the same internal pressure or or indeed media pressure. Yeah. Since Blair was clasped to the media's bosom almost immediately, uh, so it's not really a comparable situation. But yes, I mean, for example, there were there were discussions from time to time about trying to broaden out the shadow cabinet. 
bring in people like uh, Ed Miliband, uh, even Yvette Cooper was uh, was mentioned. I don't know that they were actually prepared to serve uh, under Jeremy. Um, if the question was ever raised with them, I wasn't privy to the discussion, so I don't, you know, I, I don't want to ascribe any view to either either Yvette Cooper or Miliband. But the discussions were certainly were certainly uh, uh, there. Uh, I think one of the problems in that respect have been the consequences of the uh, coup in 2016 by the PLP, yeah. which led to a massive wave of resignations from the front bench. Yeah. So the front bench was uh, uh, peopled by uh, j just really almost anyone that was left and that was remotely prepared to serve. And thereafter, Jeremy, I think, was understandably reluctant to... Uh, to remove those who'd proven their loyalty, even though some of them really went up to the job and you would be ought, we ought to have brought back in. Now, that, that's addressing your question at the level of the, of the shadow cabinet. Uh, but uh, on, a, on a broader um, a template, yes, I mean, I think perhaps more, more could have been done. I'm, I'm not denying there could have been an element of uh, who can we trust? We can't really trust anyone. We have to just rely on ourselves. Um, I think that maybe that was understandable, but I don't say it was uh, uh, it was correct um, because I, I think a slightly well a somewhat more pluralistic approach might have helped. But whether it had been decisive in coming to a different outcome, I I would I would be sceptical. So despite all that, the next big event is 2017. I mean, A, you know, were you surprised? And B, you know, we talk us through kind of what happened, but it seems to it seems to me that lots of people are trying to airbrush 2017 you know out of the out of the picture it was a real election labor did fantastically well it caught a wave of interest of young people it spoke to the hopes and fears of a of a of a you know certainly generation for whom you know uh, 21st century capitalism wasn't working and it seems ridiculous that we're not kind of learning any lessons from that now you don't have to take everything but something interesting happened didn't it in 2017 well, well it was very interesting and it has as you say it's been airbrushed out of political history uh partly by labor's right wing that simply couldn't accept it i mean 2019 was supposed to happen in 2017 for them uh, all the statements they issued after 2019 had been marinating for two and a half years uh really um uh and uh, of course since the, media, the Westminster bubble punditry all called it wrong as well, they want to forget it. Um, you know, as I say, the, the result in 2019 was the one that was supposed to happen because it had always been assumed that Corbynism would implode on first contact with the electorate. Now, actually, there have been plenty of signs previously that that might not happen. Every by-election after 2015, everyone said, this is the one, you know, Corbyn's going to lose, but actually Labour... It's not quite true because they didn't lose any of them. We lost Copeland in, in Cumbria in the end, but many of them, which we would have been expected to lose, we held. So was I surprised? Well, I was not not by the end of the campaign, um, uh, but uh, at the beginning, I remember when I was drafted into the campaign, it's been going for about two weeks, uh, and uh, it was a very long campaign. It was a seven-week election campaign. Um, I got a call uh, from... Uh, Seamus Milne to say we want you to come in because there's all these problems with the Labour um, staff that we can't uh, get over uh, and we don't think the campaign's going that well. And I said, well, from where I'm sitting, it's already going fine because it actually 
couple of weeks, Labour was going up a, a percentage point or two uh, every day. Now, when I got there and I first met Patrick Hannigan, Labour's Director of Elections and uh, Campaigns at the time, he said to me, any uh, uh, election result ends up within about 3% either way of the polling at the start of it, i.e. campaigns don't matter. Our polling at the start of it was 25%. So on a good reading, we were looking at 28% and a, a, a further hemorrhage of seats to below 200 uh, Labour MPs. That was the conventional wisdom. And the conventional wisdom was defied in a number of respects. I mean, the, the main one is that a left-wing programme can't secure popular support. Well, it got the the biggest um, increase in Labour's vote um, between one election and another since 1945. And 1945, the previous election, had been 10 years and one world war earlier. And I mean, a lot had happened and a lot of time had passed. This was only two years and one referendum since the um, uh, previous general election. <clears throat> so that was the main thing. But also the idea that there was a whole layer of people who would never vote, young people mainly, they would never vote um, and it wasn't worth bothering addressing them. Uh, it, it showed that that, that, was, that was proved to be, uh, proved to be uh, false. Uh, the idea we had to tack to very conventional political views on foreign policy, that was shown to be false in the response we did to the terrorist bombing in Manchester. That happened in the middle of the uh, middle of the campaign. Um, and, uh, you know, the even see the canvas returns. They weren't great during that campaign, but it showed that actually canvassing misses a lot of people. Um, you know, th th there's a lot of young people, again, particularly, who probably never get canvassed. Um, you know, maybe the mum or dad answer the door or whatever, and uh, uh, and so on. So, yeah, it was a, it, and it was, and you ha you had a feeling during that campaign that you know we were gaining momentum, um, uh, you know, day by day. In fact, I mean, it's said if the campaign had gone on for another few days or another week, which is unreasonable given it was a very long campaign anyway, um, we could well have. Um, well, we could well have denied the Tories the possibility of forming a government, I suppose, is the, is the best way to to put it. And yes, there are lessons to be learned uh, there. I mean, that we had a, a measured radical programme, but it addressed, you know, people's real concerns, not just what the left think people ought to be concerned about. Uh, and it, it, so... You know, we, we were helped by other things out of our control, like the inept campaign of the Tories and indeed the Liberal Democrats that couldn't move off the issue of whether gay sex was a sin or not. Uh, so, so we were helped in that uh, in that respect. But I, I think uh, you know a left, however broadly defined, that wants to look to the future needs to look at the twenty seventeen election campaign to what worked there. Um, it also, we need to be realistic. I mean, we our vote went up 10%. The Tory vote went up 7%. I mean, Theresa May got the biggest increase in the Tory vote um, since the Thatcher years. Yeah. Um, and no thanks she gets for it. Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, we did well. And that's, you know, I, I think 2017 has to be studied as much as 2019 for lessons for the future. And, get, I will, you know, come back to this, but you know, given the material conditions of now, you know, um, we're nowhere near that kind of, I mean, you know, in, in historical senses, quite moderate, reasonable social democratic policies. Hello, 
This is Gabriel from the Compass Office, interrupting for a moment. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. It's Bloody Complicated is brought to you by Compass, and it's made possible by the support of our amazing members, like Eliza. Here's Eliza on why she joined the Compass community. My name is Eliza. I've been a Compass member for about three or four years, I think. What drew me to Compass was the fact that it's cross-party and it's also not a party. I had a light bulb moment about elections, which was no one's going to win except the Tories under this system and we have to work together. Having been previously a member of the Labour Party and then joining the Green Party, I really wanted to see parties working together and we have people that are politicians, MPs, trade union leaders, etc. And it's quite level. There's no big hierarchy. It's quite an honest, open space where people come together. You will hear from people from all around the political spectrum actually debating the hard stuff. It's actually, let's find a solution to the problems that we have and let's do it together. We need this progressive alliance. And I would like to see people who are passionate about getting the Tories out in the next election and getting proportional representation in. Come and join Compass now and actually swell the movement because without people, there's no power. And that's what we need right now. Find out more about joining the Compass community at compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast. And now back to the conversation. One footnote to, to 2017, I just want your kind of view on. Uh, that's where Compass first run Progressive Alliance kind of campaigns. And we think we made a difference in about 30 odd seats. Um, primarily because of the generosity of the Green Party, where they stood aside um, in order to to ensure a non-conservative win. We, it was, we found it kind of like heartbreaking that the Labour Party never said anything about that, never thanked the Green candidates or the Green voters who decided to put the, you know, the country's interest and progressive interest before the Green Party. Do you have any reflections on that at all? Well, I, I'm a sh- Shamed to say, Neil, that I wasn't actually aware that the Green Party had uh, uh, had done that. I mean, I would be surprised if it made a difference in thirty seats. But you've obviously looked at that, so I'm not. I'm not. I'm not arguing. Um, I mean, certainly, I think the Green Party were in would be in a degree of electoral difficulty when you have a a Corbyn or Corbyn type leadership of the Labour Party because it, it's a the Labour Party is a credible party of government. The Green Party isn't, and its voters are likely to look, um, you know, look at voting Labour as a more useful, a useful vote when the Labour Party is expressing more or less the same things as the Green Party uh, uh, stands for. Um, so, I think the relationship of Labour to the Greens uh, is an important and interesting one for uh, for the future. I, I separate that a bit from well, quite a lot from the question of the Lib Dems. Uh, but, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, if the Green Party did stand aside, well, they should be thanked for it. Um, I don't know why I wasn't aware of that, um, but they should be. But I would say that that may not entirely have been an act of philanthropy insofar as I believe the well, their vote was squeezed and the seats where they did stand was squeezed relative to 2015. Yeah, but they, but they uh, lost out on national vote share. Caroline Lucas or her office decimated because she got less short money. Um, they didn't have to do that. You know, the candidates stood aside um, in many instances because, you know, so I think that act of solidarity on the left is one that we should practice and reciprocate. But anyway, let, let's move on. Let's move on. Because obviously, the, let's kind of entwine Brexit with 2019, because I don't see how you can kind of talk about them separately. I mean, I think this is one of the darkest eras in British parliamentary politics, with a, you know, on both sides and by many people, 
a kind of refusal to do what was in the national interest and abide by a referendum decision. Compass felt very, very ambivalent about the whole thing because we're very pro-European, but we're very pro-democracy and there was a referendum. And going back to say, you know, you stupid people have a no go at the question didn't seem to us to be the right thing to say at all. It was to say, why did people vote this way? You know, what, what, you know what's happened to their kind of sense of sovereignty, power, self-determination, et cetera, that's kind of led them to this decision? How do we begin to address that? And how do we come up with a, a solution to, to getting Brexit done in the now vernacular, which reflected a very narrow vote? And both sides played fast and loose on that. And it seemed to me that you and Jeremy and others were in an incredibly, almost impossible position to try and work out an angle about how you navigate through that. It was it must have been the toughest thing you've ever faced. Well, it was. It was very tough. Um, and, and I... I agree with where you're coming from. I mean, actually, I, I voted to leave uh, uh, the EU, but I wouldn't say I've ever been a, a sort of um, a, an issue I got fantastically wound up about. Uh, I always felt if Britain left the EU, it'd be when you had a socialist government in Britain and, and it was clearly operating outside the EU's rules and that's when it would come to, uh, uh, to the point of departure. So, you know, I, at any event, I can, I, I've got no huge quarrel with people that voted left-wing people that voted remain i think that's a debate one could easily have where i absolutely have a quarrel is uh, a vote was had millions of people voted to leave that should have been delivered on now it's a problem with the referendum that it gives you a mandate to leave but no mandate as to what those terms should be and all sorts of contradictory and confusing arguments were advanced in the referendum as to what leaving would actually mean by those who were advocating it. So there is there is a confusion. Uh, and, um, you know, it became disastrous for Corbyn's project that opinion was re-polarised around are you leave or remain rather than are you Labour or Tory or, uh, you know, do you want this, this, what sort of changes do you want in British uh, uh, society? Now, I think, I mean, you said there was nothing much we could have done about it. I argue in the book that there was an opportunity, uh, an opportunity that had long gone by 2019, that after 2017, well, we had uh, you know, what was effectively a hung uh, parliament. Theresa May absolutely madly thought she could press on with her Brexit strategy as it had been. Uh, it was clear by the autumn of 2017 that was going to cause immense trouble. And I I suggested in the Corbyn leadership that we ought to uh, reach out uh, to uh, the government and say, on this one issue, we both had a manifesto saying we must leave the EU, we must respect the referendum result. Let's see if we can you know, come up with a, a joint... Um, uh, approach that can command a majority. The House of Commons can get this issue dealt with and then we can go back to opposing each other as we do. Now that was a moment when Jeremy's stock in the Labour Party had ever been higher. I mean his opponents internally were temporarily quietened. It's also a moment where the Remain half of the country was really I think would have been was expecting or hoping for a soft Brexit. They weren't expecting... I mean, the, the campaign to have a second referendum hadn't really got much traction then. Uh, 
I think that was a moment when a positive initiative could have worked. Now, it could just likely not work in the sense Theresa May might not have been interested at all because of pressure from her own right wing. Um, and, uh, you know, it would have it would have been controversial in the Labour Party itself if you're seen to be, as it were, helping uh, the government. But I think we'd have been helping ourselves. We'd have put the help put the issue to, to bed and then could have got a, a new focus on what sort of Britain do we want post-Brexit, which was favourable terrain uh, for us, rather than arguing about Brexit and getting dragged incrementally over two miserable years into a position that ultimately I thought was absolutely absurd, but was understood by millions of voters as, in effect, a remain uh, position uh, and uh, supporting a second referendum. Now, people say they argue, well, what's undemocratic about arguing for another um, referendum? It's like uh, you can argue for another general election at any time. Well, the truth is, if you argue for another general election, you are still accepting the result of the previous one and that you have that government there until you have an election to get rid of it. You couldn't have a second referendum until the first one had been implemented uh, without it looking like, um, you know, thwarting the will of the of the people. That is where we ended up. Um, in 2017, it appeared easier uh, to the Corbyn leadership to simply oppose the government and wait for it to collapse, which wasn't a mad idea. I mean, it did look like it was a vulnerable government. And then we'd have another general election and we'd win it and then we'd sort Brexit out somehow or other uh, afterwards. I think that misjudged the determination of the May government not to, or, or the establishment more generally, give any room for a Corbyn uh, uh, takeover. Um, and uh, it was reported to me um, that... Uh, one of the leaders of the DUP, uh, who, which were then propping up the main government, saying that whatever uh, divisions there might be over Brexit, whatever problems they might have uh, with May, they would never allow Sinn Féin in Downing Street. And by Sinn Féin in Downing Street, they meant, of course, uh, Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell. So uh, I think we underestimated that resilience. Um, but in a way, our... our um, uh, grief was a product of the 2017 election result, which meant that the Tories couldn't get through their preferred hardish sort of Brexit. Um, and uh, instead, we had this prolonged parliamentary deadlock, stagnation, and Labour then went up to its neck in parliamentary manoeuvring and indicative votes and amendments and, you know, the sort of uh, Wilson, what's his name from Hove, proposals and uh uh kyle kyle wilson um uh you know and, and what had been an insurgent democratic movement suddenly became a movement of parliamentary obstruction and I, I think that was fatal and i think jeremy knew it i think he was that is why he found it so hard to navigate a way out of this because well i don't want to be thought in this interview or in my book or elsewhere as speaking for him uh you know i think you know he he knew that this wasn't leading us anywhere good uh and uh, uh and that we were getting completely bogged down but uh there was a view that's what the labor party members wanted us to push for a second uh, referendum whereas in my view what the labor party members said depended on the question you asked them if you said do you want to stay in the EU or leave? They would say, we want to stay in the EU. If you said, 
would you rather have a second referendum on the question or get Jeremy Corbyn into Downing Street? They would nearly all say Jeremy Corbyn into uh, uh, Downing Street. The exceptions were some of the people running the People's Vote campaign who are all Blairite um, holdovers. And the result of their efforts is we now have a much harder Brexit than we would have done under any other scenario that was available at the time. And so then all this comes crashing together in 2019, where a mix of Labour's position on Brexit, which was confused and muddled and uncertain, you know, compared to a Johnson one of, you know, oven ready, whatever other nonsense. And all of that combined, you know, just leads to this catastrophic um, uh, 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 defeat. I, th- I guess your next book, Andrew, could, uh, could be on a kind of counterfactual if you'd have got that deal through and a, and a sensible Brexit deal could have been done. Maybe the, the whole world would have been a lot different. Well, I think possibly. I think possibly. I mean, I think I think Brexit was the issue, what was the rock we founded on. I think if there hadn't been Brexit, we would still have had any number of other difficulties from the opposition to Jeremy and his policies from the establishment and the large section of the Labour Party. Um, but I think had we had we got a Brexit deal through, which would have had to been a deal done with the government, there was no other scenario, uh, then, um, uh, you know, in 2017 or early 2018, uh, then yes, I think, I think um, history could have been uh, very different uh, that... We then probably wouldn't have had a general election until, well, maybe around now, probably we've had it by now. Um, but uh, uh, I, I think we'd, we could have had wind in, our, uh, wind in our sails, definitely. And so where is the project now? Um, you know, things go up and down in, in politics now in this kind of era of, you know, crisis. I mean, a lot of the, you know, we always looked at Jeremy and said we loved the, you know, the wave. We were unsure about the surfer. The wave is still moving, isn't it? As the crisis of capitalism, you know, continues to kind of unfold, the cost of living, the climate crisis, you know, energy supply, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, and the, the disputes over the summer and the flexing of the trade union muscle, you know, and the, and the broad general public acceptance of that. But, you know, that isn't located alongside the Labour Party anymore, is it? How does that, how does that feel? Frustrating? Well, very frustrating. Um, I mean... Uh, I, I think um, you know the left's defeat in 2019 has sort of turned into a rout, at least for now. While, as you say, in the real world, the need for something like Corbynism is greater than uh, greater than ever. The um, uh, relevance of his approach and the program uh, is 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 greater now than it was at the time he advanced it. Um, in terms of who wouldn't want to see energy and utilities and uh, water and public ownership now when we've got you know shit washing up on our beaches and fuel bills going um uh, going through the roof you know i mean for example i mean one thing jeremy did he was uh, he was given a softball question i remember in the 2019 campaign at some point so what was the first thing you'd do as prime minister and he underlined a bit and then he'd said i'd end rough sleeping I'd, I'd get all the homeless into proper homes everyone said oh that's can't do that. That's just not possible. Yet, three months later in the pandemic, it was done overnight. Of yeah. course, we've gone back a long way since, but it was done overnight. It could easily have been done. You know, the magic money tree uh, suddenly uh, uh, was there in all its uh, bounty. So I think, you know, you, ha- you have this uh, mismatch between what's going on in the world today, and you've summarised it. We've had the pandemic, we've had climate change, we've got the soaring inflation, we've got 
uh, war, we've got uh, a, a wave of industrial action, all of which mandates a radical break with the sort of neoliberal centrism that has really dominated politics in this country since 1979, uh, but lives on zombie-like, um, particularly since 2008. And yet um, Labour under Keir Starmer has moved much further in the other direction than I expected. I wasn't expecting continuity um, uh, Corbyn, um, but he seems to have be completely um, operating as Blair without the uh, charisma or the, the brio. Uh, yeah, he's turned his, his back on that, even when it would make every electoral sense to be championing it as on public ownership of energy, which, I mean, most Tory voters uh, would support that, you know, so even as an act of expediency, political expediency, his conduct is enigmatic. Uh, and it, um, it sort of reinforces an argument I make in the book that really his function is solely to hammer the left, uh, to reduce the left in the Labour Party to a point where it's no longer a threat, no longer an influence. Um, and then, uh, you know, possibly a more um, a more brazen Blairite might might emerge to assume the leadership. Well, let's see about that. I uh, I understand completely what you're saying and have some sympathy with it. Let's finish this fascinating conversation with you and about the book um, "Is Socialism Possible in Britain?" With a kind of where we kind of I think we share some territory, but I think we part in you know interesting ways. And it seems to me from reading the book and, and listening to you, Andrew, that, I mean, you have a theory of change, which is based essentially on class. It's based essentially on a kind of singular vehicle. I mean, you talk about kind of kaleidoscopes in the sort of rainbow coalition sense, but you think that needs to be marshaled by probably by a singular party, which is run on democratic kind of lines. And if you had a democratic party, it could then impose a manifesto, which would do all the things that, that you want done. I mean, Compass has a very different kind of theory of change, you know, to get to many of the same ends. But we, as I say, our, our politics is plural. We think you have to change this, the political system. We want to see PR so that you can kind of negotiate. You can have honest positions um, as, as, as a range of different parties that then have to be negotiated into something to deliver long-term settlements. I would vote for a Liberal Democrat if I thought the Liberal Democrat could beat the Tory you know, if, if, you know, where Labour can't win, I'm guessing that you wouldn't be in the same place. I mean, how, what, how do you feel now, having gone through the mill of the Corbyn experience, had almost, you know, the very, you had your chance. This was a golden moment, uh, you know, a, a leader who summed up, you know, your approach to politics, um, but for various, you know, reasons beyond your control and maybe sometimes within your control, it didn't work. But do you not reflect at all on your kind of political project and how it yeah, be, I mean, of course, how it should uh, be prosecuted in the 21st century? I mean, I'm, I'd never been in favour of PR, but I can now see it is something I think the Labour movement is going to adopt as its policy, you know, before long. And I can, I can see... Do you approve of that? Well, I, I don't disapprove of it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't die in a ditch against it anymore. Um, you know, I, I, I think it is, it is going to happen. Uh, sooner or later. Uh, and I think the issue will be what form of PR one chooses to uh, adopt. You know, uh, whether you go for an absolute Israeli system or you have some sort of, you know, German system or whatever. Anyway, I, I think that's coming and I think it's normal and I think it's, um, you know, it, it, it's hard to 
muster arguments uh, against it in a world where, well, as I, again, I think I referred to in the book, the Labour Party won more than 40% of the vote in every general election from 1945 to 1970. It's only done that three times since Blair 97, Blair 2001, and Corbyn in uh, 2017. And the, the two party share of the vote has gone as low as. 64% of the total. It's a different world. I mean, you know, it, it is different, and I, I accept that. Now, on the broader point you make, uh, well, I mean, to say we would be more plural, I mean, that 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 is a declaration of virtue and so on, and uh, who would want to not be plural? But one has to talk about the actual political forces one is uh, dealing with. Uh, now, as I said, the Greens are... Um, uh, definitely a progressive force in British politics, uh, and you can make a case for uh, a more uh, or, or, or a less standoffish or hostile attitude towards them. As some. But I mean, it, they're a limited force, even at, at high tide, they account for about 3% of the uh, vote in the, uh, elections, general elections anyway. European is a different matter, and we don't have those anymore. Uh, so one has to actually look at the political forces. Now, it, if one was actually to say the point is to defeat the Tory party, then what you're arguing makes perfect sense. Well, it would make perfect sense. I remember in 2010, the Guardian editorial, a vote Lib Dem to keep the Tories out. Well, that actually, people that voted Lib Dem put the Tories in uh, as it uh, uh, as it happened. And I think one has to then look at, you know, in, if what you are proposing would be effectively coalition uh, politics, what would be the values that would drive that? What would be the um, a common terrain that would define that as a movement or that as a uh, as a government? And the urgent need, as we I think we just agreed, is is to move on from the sort of neoliberal centrism, which really was exhausted by two thousand and eight and has shown no capacity to grapple with the numerous crises that we've had since. The danger is that that would simply embed that uh, politics, uh, or there's a danger, a serious danger, it would embed that uh, politics. And it is it is a fact that the Liberal Democrats have only ever allied uh, with the Tories since they were founded for five years. Joe Swinson clearly wasn't going to be interested in putting Corbyn into power had that been a possibility after the 2019 election. So if the aim is to transform society, it doesn't seem to me that that's a terribly uh, likely way to uh, to advance uh, advance that. Uh, I probably wouldn't vote Liberal Democrat under any circumstances uh, at all because, uh, well, for that that reason, I mean, the outcome is likely to give them disproportionate power and uh, influence, and they would not use that for the sort of uh, transformations that I want to see uh, in society, and also. I mean, the question you say of a class-based um, approach, well, yes, that is absolutely true. But I do outline in the book how one can't have a static view of class, how in a way it needs remaking. Uh, it needs remaking, and it doesn't. That, that doesn't mean returning it to what it was 100 years ago or 50 years ago or even 30 years ago. One has to look. And I think Corbynism in 2017 particularly showed that in embryo about is able to unite different sections of working people behind a common political project. Perhaps we're going to see that again coming out of the industrial disputes at the moment. Uh, so, so it needs remaking class. 
But in the end, if you abandon large parts of the country electorally, then you're, it's probably the, the death knell of the Labour movement as other than a sort of um, special interest group in you know big cities and a few other places. Or at least there is that danger and that idea that it has, that socialism is a project for the whole of society and not just, you know, um, not just cities or old industrial areas or whatever, uh, would really take a knock. So I'm sorry that's a rambling uh, answer, but it's a multifaceted question that you raise. And I've explained as best I can my reservations uh, about it. The, the the final point I'd like to make is obviously the, the popular front of the 1930s is somehow uh, sometimes invoked about uniting everyone against the far right. Um, and you can see that danger now. It's not the far right of the 30s, but it's, a, it's, it's a, a, you know, the sort of Trump, uh, Trump, Le Pen, you know, of which Johnson is a diluted, was a diluted form. Liz Trust probably will be much, uh, much the same. But it's my view that that cannot be done by defending the centrist status quo, that it has to be allied to a more transformational vision of society to defend democracy properly. Uh, because if we're saying that, you know, defending democracy means putting up with all this sort of centrist misrule, it won't work. Over at Compass, we certainly don't want centrist um, uh, misrule. We do want to, no. we do believe that democracy is a first order issue. Um, and unless we unlock that, we can't do the things we want because the current system doesn't allow us to do all the things that both you and I want. But anyway, that's a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today, Andrew. Both thanks so much for writing the book, Is Socialism Possible in Britain? Published in September by Verso. It's, a, as I said before, it's a really kind of rip-roaring read of those years, fascinating stuff, stuff to learn, stuff to remember, stuff to reflect on and go back to. So thanks very much for being with us. Um, the podcast proper, I say proper, returns for a special issue on the 5th of September at seven o'clock, not our usual time of of six o'clock, and that's Monday, the fifth of September. And you'll probably know already that that's the day, um, the, the day that we find out who the new leader of the Conservative Party is, and um, who the new Prime Minister is. And we'll be joined by Ken Spurs um, and others to try and digest what that means for progressive politics. So do uh, join us then. Thank you again, Andrew. Thanks so much for writing Thank the you. book and being with here. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, then do join Compass. If you haven't done yet, we need you, and you need us. Um, until the next time, whatever you do, stay safe and stay hopeful. And um, we'll be back with It's Bloody Complicated very soon. Take care. So, if you like what you've heard today and want to be part of a much more equal, democratic and sustainable future, a good society, then visit us at compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast and you'll be able to join us live on future calls just like this one. You can tweet me at neil, N-E-A-L underscore compass, or compass at compass office. And if you've enjoyed this week's episode, please give us a rating. It will help us reach more listeners in the future. And it's only fair that they know it's bloody complicated too.